seated, friends. Mm, praise the Lord. I was thinking, um, you know, tonight if you're um, available at 7 o'clock at the uh, Company 1 of the South Windsor Fire Department on, in Ellington, on Ellington Road in South Windsor, uh, we're going to be doing a, I'll be participating in a special 9-11 service and um, we have an Eagle Scout in South Windsor that, uh, for his Eagle Scout project, was able to get a piece of steel from the World Trade Center, and he's built a little, a nice little memorial garden at the company one there in South Windsor, and we're going to be dedicating the steel and so forth tonight at 7, and that's open to the whole community, so you're more than welcome to attend, and um, it'll be a good night, I think, very meaningful. So... Uh, yeah, it's hard to believe. I keep, I've been thinking about that this morning, what we were doing 15 years ago right now, right? Um, I'm sure a number of us were glued to our TV sets just watching in horror, right? It's hard to believe that was 15 years ago today. <clears throat> and uh, our nation needs God now more than ever. And so has his people, let us take our call seriously to represent him well in our nation, and to pray, and to, and to pray, and to bless our nation. I take Proverbs uh, 11 very seriously. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it's torn down. And so you and I have this privilege as God's people to bring his blessing to where we live. It's easy to moan about the stuff that we don't like, right? But we resist that. Instead, we bring... God's blessing to uh, this place that he's given us the privilege of living in. So that's not my sermon today, but thought I'd start there. Last, uh, last Sunday, we started talking about from the, what the Bible has to say about work. And uh, we learned that all legitimate work is God's work, that there's no such thing as holy work and then all the other kinds of work, but that for the follower of Jesus, all work is sacred because uh, your work is uh, how Jesus represents himself where you work. And so your work is your mission field. You might be a missionary to Pratt & Whitney or a missionary to that trucking company or a missionary to that office building, missionary to that school, but you're a missionary there. And so Monday is fun day. You hop in the car, you drive off to your destiny because God's going to use you in some cool way. Uh, this day and this week where you work. And so that was last Sunday. And I came across in studying for this morning, Ephesians chapter four twenty-eight. and I really wish I had it for last week. But then, I, well, it's a good one. It's a good bridge. It's a transition from last week to this week. So Ephesians four twenty-eight. it says this. It says, uh, um, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. And uh, it's a great idea for rehabilitating a thief. You put him to work. You make him work hard, really hard. And then, and then you enable them to earn legitimate income so that then they can share with those in need. And it's a great, great idea. But there's something else in this verse that I think is cool that gives us a great purpose for work. And, and that's this. We work so that we have something to give to those in need. 
Did you catch that? That your work affords you the income to be generous with others who cannot work. And that leads us to today's topic of welfare. And it's like I said last Sunday, I really just, last Sunday was Labor Day, and I really just was going to do a one-off sermon on work. But the more I got into it, the more I thought, well, you've got work, welfare, wealth, those go hand in hand. And so this is part two of an impromptu series. And, uh, and we're going to talk about welfare this morning. Um, you're familiar with the old saying that two wrongs don't make a right. When it comes to the issue of welfare, many people commit this sin. Because sometimes we assume that people are poor because they're lazy. This is not true. But equally, sometimes we assume that people are rich because they're greedy. That is also not true. It's just as wrong to accuse a rich person of greed as it is to accuse a poor person of laziness. Two wrongs don't make a right. And then sometimes in our efforts to elevate the poor, we put down the rich. How does that help? You can't put down one to build up another. Two wrongs don't make a right. And so there's got to be a better solution, right? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. It says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Exodus 23 says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. In other words, the size of your checkbook, or hot topic nowadays, the color of your skin, should never be an excuse for you to get away with something that's wrong. In order for us as a society to maintain justice, then people must be held accountable for their behavior, whether they are poor or rich or white or black. So there's got to be a better solution to this, right? The good news is that there is a great solution. In fact, let me make my bias known to you right up front I don't believe that the government has the solution. The best thing that human government can do is kind of put a Band-Aid on it, but they, they lack the ability to really address the core issue, the root causes of poverty and the things that you know, are a blight on our human race. So it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. Politicians just don't have the solution. This is not a political message. However, you... As a follower of Jesus Christ, with God's word in your hand, do have the solution. Um, Our government spends a lot of money on poverty, and it's still not getting the job done. That's because it's just a Band-Aid. It's time that we address, and you and I have have the ability to address the heart of it. And the Bible has it, so we're going to look at it today. Um, Now, two things. I warn you. Uh, get ready, because we've got a lot of Bible verses to look up, okay? So I hope your phone battery's charged and you're ready to go, and I hope your Bible's ready to go, because I promise you, we've, we buckle up. We've got a lot of ground to cover today in a short period of time. And the second thing is this. I make the same commitment to you that I did last week, and that's this. 
that if my life is not in line with God's word, that I want to change because I want my life to be in line with God's word. Amen? I don't want my life to be in line with CNN. I don't want it. I want my life to be in line with what God's word says because the only way that I can benefit this place where I live is that I'm a man of the word and that I bring his truth where I live. And so let's take a look at it. Deuteronomy, we'll start there. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 to 11. I'll uh, read, start reading. It says, However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only, if only, catch the if, you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and, he will, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this uh, 15 yeah okay harbor this wicked thought the seventh year the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing they may then appeal to the Lord God against you and you will be found guilty of sin give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart then because of this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work in everything you put your hand to Look at that. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Always. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So verses 4 to 6 give us really the root cause of poverty. It's sin. Now it's wrong to say that this person is poor because they have sinned. That's not correct. However, poverty is the result of the sin of mankind, that we as a race of people, like the Bible says, we've all turned our own way. Each of us, like a sheep, has gone astray. And as a result, the world in which we live is under a curse. But God makes it very clear, look, there should be no poor among you. And the solution there to do that is if you fully obey everything. But that's a big if, isn't it? If you fully obey all of my commandments. So the Israelites, they didn't quite measure up to that standard back then. And guess what? We don't live up to it either. So as a result, there are poor in the land. And I think it's even interesting that the verse 11 says there will always be poor people among you. So God already knows that you and I are made of dust and um, loves us anyway. Thank him for that, right? So verses 7 to 11 then speak about us being generous with the poor man. The year for canceling debts. I know that's kind of a different concept to us. So every seven years in, in ancient Israel in this time, they canceled all debts. It was a way of preventing one Israelite from becoming a slave to another Israelite for too long. Because the way that most people were enslaved was through debt. So if I owed 
if I owed Marvin too much money and I can't pay him back, I just say, hey, why don't, you know, I went, I became his servant. I worked for him. And then I would pay him back that way in service, right? Well, they didn't want that happening and getting out of control. And so the rule was every seven years, we cancel the debts. But now imagine that. At the beginning of that cycle, if Marvin owns me money, uh, loans me money, I'm more likely to pay it back. If it's at the beginning of the cycle, I've got seven years to pay it back, right? But if we're coming to the end of that cycle, it might be tempting for Marv to say, well, maybe not, let's wait, because I'm not, I'm not going to get it back. You follow that? And what does God call that thinking? Sin. Oh, ouch. I mean, he hadn't minced the words. You'll be that's guilty of sin to be thinking that way. He goes, no, be, don't be tight-fisted with your brother. Don't, don't do that. Be open-handed. Lend him what he needs. And even you know you're coming up on the seventh year, you know that's a donation. That's not a loan, right? But I'm giving it anyway because that's the heart that God wants me to have. You follow that? Proverbs, see, so, so generosity is part of God's plan. And then look at this third one. Um, give generously. He goes, so that the Lord might bless you and all your work. I wanna, I'm going to bring this out next week when we talk about wealth. But listen, if you want more to give, give more. Generosity is actually a part of God's plan for you in developing wealth in your life. We'll talk more about it next week. Maybe that'll be a tease. But that's where that is. Proverbs 19.17 says this. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. In other words, generosity with the poor, you're floating alone to God, and God pays you back with interest. You're floating them alone. James 2.13 says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this story about sheep and goats, And the sheep are basically kind to the poor, and the goats are not. And then Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So when I'm I'm being generous with someone who is poor, Jesus takes that personally. I'm literally being generous with Jesus. So obviously, caring for the poor is very important to God, and he takes it personally, and he takes it seriously, right? But how? How do we practice welfare? I've just, in my, there were so many Bible verses. I mean, you really, um, I can't do it justice this morning. But I kind of pulled out two sort of thoughts for us to consider. Number one is, we've got to distinguish the difference between those who can work and those who cannot work. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, if you can with me, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he says this, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Now, in Paul, this is the second letter, right? You notice this is Second Thessalonians. So there was First Thessalonians, which came before it. In the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 
he talked about the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus is coming any day now. Get ready. And so in response to that first letter, there were Christians in this church that quit their jobs and went and hung out on a hillside, waited for Jesus to come back. And, well, we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. So as you can imagine, they started to get hungry, right? And they began to mooch off the rest of the people in the church. And it really became spiritually abusive because, you know, I'm more spiritual. Obviously, I quit my job and I'm waiting for Jesus to return. So can you feed me, right? And so Paul addresses this issue and that's where the rule comes from. Look at buddy. If you're not working, you ain't eating. He just laid it out for him. Get, get off your buns and get back to work. And Jesus will come back eventually. But in the meantime, let him find you working, right? It's a great, great principle. So in that sense, that was applied directly to that church, okay? However, there's an underlying principle here that we can extract out of it. And that's what we do with the Scripture, right? And the principle is this. If you can work, you should work. That's the principle. If I'm able-bodied, it's my responsibility to provide for me and my family. It's my responsibility. If I can. It's not yours to provide for my family. It's mine. And if it takes one job, two jobs, three jobs, four jobs to get it done, so be it. I get it done. There's no, there's no uh, guarantee, there's nothing in the Bible, there's no right that says, hey, as a human being, you deserve to have a part-time job that pays you 100 grand a year. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. And uh, it just says, get to work. And I do what I need to do to get the job done, to care for me and my family. That's what I do. So that's the underlying principle. You see, the the issue with giving someone handouts, and we talked about this last week when we talked about work. Part of the purpose of work is that it gives us dignity, that God created us to actually work. And work is a very good thing. And work is connected to my sense of dignity as a human being. My life needs to make a contribution somehow. And a lot of harm is done to a person. We, we, we rob people of dignity by just giving and giving and feeling bad and giving and not ever expecting work. So even if it, listen, this is my own, I'll just say this is my own opinion. Even if it's a job that pays less than my welfare check, take the job. The value of your dignity is priceless. And I'd rather go to sleep at night with a hurting back and less money than have done nothing and gotten a check for free. So that leads to my second concept. Even the poorest person has something to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, talks about the Macedonian churches. And even though they were extremely poor, they took up a collection for the Christians that lived in Jerusalem. So Macedonia was right about where modern-day Greece and Turkey are. And then if you kind of know your map a little bit, Greece and Turkey. And then Jerusalem is quite a good distance away, right? So this is before the news and before the Internet, obviously. But these... Christians in Macedonia heard about the Christians in Jerusalem and how they were struggling. And so these, 
the Macedonian Christians took up an offering to benefit their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And here's what the Apostle Paul says about them. He goes in, Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian Christians. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And then in Mark 12, 42, we read about the, the elderly widow who gave her last two pennies in the offering plate. And Jesus praised that woman for her generosity. And we learned something about generosity. Generosity is not about the portion that you give, but the proportion that you give. The Macedonian churches, they displayed rich generosity. Why? Because they gave out of extreme poverty. And the, the widow with her might, with her two little pennies, she displayed rich generosity. Why? Because she gave out of extreme poverty, and she gave everything she had to God. You follow that? So the portion might be small when compared with the giving of others, but the proportion is far greater. True? And you know, a movie star might write a million-dollar check, and everybody goes bananas over it in the news. But they've got millions left. Can I tell you that the heart of God the Father, when he sees your generosity in private, nobody knows about it. And you write that $1,000 check or whatever it is, and you feel the pinch of it in your own checkbook. Blesses God's heart. My point is simply this. That as we practice welfare, we've got to somehow also encourage generosity because everyone has something to give. And again, I believe this is why the church is much better suited to solve the problem of poverty than the government. Because within our faith community, people are given the opportunity to contribute their time and their talents and their treasures. And that guards a person's sense of dignity and worth and value. They're not just, you know, taking, but they're contributing as well. So with these two concepts as a foundation, I just want to look at an example from the Old Testament and an example from the New Testament and how they practiced welfare. And I think we'll see these concepts in action and then we'll uh, wrap it up. So first, the Old Testament. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, um, I know I say verses 14 and 15, and they're good, but for the sake of time, let's just go right to verse 19. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, it says that when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. See, there it is again, isn't it? When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. So, in a sense, God orders the Israelites to be sloppy farmers. Right? Because the, because the idea was, then you leave, you leave the, some of the fruit in the field 
so that the poor can come and they can harvest it for themselves. So get your first harvest, that belonged to the farmer. But then don't, don't go over the field again. Let the, let the poor come and gather their food that they need. And in a sense, that's how they cared then for the poor. So there's a kind of an interesting thing there, isn't it? I mean, you notice that only the people who genuinely couldn't work, the crippled, the lame, you know, the blind, they couldn't go to the field. So those were the ones that received the handouts. But if you could work, then you got out into the field, you picked. Can you see how that would even preserve the dignity of someone? They actually worked for what they received, right? They weren't literally just handed a basket of grapes, but they went and they picked them themselves. Follow? It's a great system. Now, and notice again the connection between the care for the poor and God's blessing upon your own efforts. Do you see that? Verse 19, so that the Lord God may bless you and all the work of your hands. In other words, there's like two sides to this welfare issue. There's the responsibility of those who are working, those who have the means. And the respons- their responsibility is to be generous, to be looking out for the poor. But then there's the other side, which is the responsibility of the poor to work their part in the system. And I would even argue that one of the steps necessary for helping someone to climb out of poverty and break the cycle of brokenness in their own life is that they practice generosity with the little that they've received and with what they've been earned and been given. It's a step. I'm not saying it's the only step, but it's a huge step towards getting someone out of that cycle of poverty, that they begin to recognize, I have something to contribute. I'm, that they are generous with what they've received. Some might argue, well, that's the Old Testament. I mean, that's great. Those guys were farmers. That was an agrarian society. Since the Industrial Revolution, we don't function that way. I mean, God could command them to be sloppy farmers, but you can't be a sloppy computer programmer. That's not going to work that way. You can't be a sloppy teacher. It doesn't, you know, we don't, we don't derive, I don't know that any of us derives our living or our income straight off the land, right? So how do I apply that to my life today? And that gets us into the New Testament. In the New Testament, welfare became a church issue. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and if you look that up, while you're looking that up, Acts chapter 4 says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. I've heard people use this as a justification for communism, but what they fail to understand is that this was in the church. In order for communism to really work, could work, in order for it to work, you've got to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. You have to have the whole sin problem dealt with. (laughs) Otherwise... Even communism becomes a system that's abusive. I mean, that's really, the uh, same can be said of capitalism. Same can, you know, can be said of any of those, right? 
We need Jesus to change our hearts. That's the bottom line. But it's kind of cool that the first church, that they cared for one another in such deep ways that they would sell houses, sell lands, bring that money, share it to make sure that everybody was cared for. The point would be this, welfare was in the church. Follow that, that's the principle. Grab that. It was a church thing. It wasn't a government thing, it was a church thing. And the Christians supplied that for one another. I gotta say, and I've said it before, New River has been, I don't know that we've ever given away a house or a land yet, but I know that as a church, I think we've given away 13 cars and one motorcycle over the 20 years that I know about it. Cars that you could have, you could have easily sold or traded in for another car, but you didn't. You gave it, and you blessed someone who needed it. I think that's cool. So kudos to you, New River Church. You're living out this a little bit. In Acts chapter 6, we read about the first church deacons because the Greek widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food in the soup line. And so they were complaining. And I think that's interesting, isn't it, that racism was at play in the first church? That's racism. The Greek widows were being overlooked, and the Hebrew widows were being fed first. And there was a discrepancy there. And so the church dealt with that. How did they deal with that? Well, they appointed the first church deacons. Seven men, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, to take care of the soup kitchen, to make sure that there was equal distribution of the food and that those who needed it were cared for, regardless of what race they were. Kind of neat. And then you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I could probably give a whole sermon on each one of these texts, but we're just breezing through them. 1 Timothy 5, and I do want to read this, a good chunk of Scripture So let's just read it. I'll read it. If you would read it with me, please. Um, I wish I could pick out pieces, but I can't. So we just got to get the whole thing. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure, well, is dead even though she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a heavy-duty verse, isn't it? Verse 9, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well-known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children and showing hospitality and washing the feet of the Lord's people and helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. In other words, the only people that got on their list were people that had a good reputation. They were upstanding people, serving, giving, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. And just as a little aside, I kind of think this is the Apostle Paul coming through. The Apostle Paul was a single man, and, uh, 
you know, so anyway, I kind of think this is some of his own bent coming through the text, but I'll just leave it there. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge, the pledge to be single, right, as Paul had made that pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but they also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, manage their homes, give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who's a believer has widows in her care or in her home, in her family, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. That's a very important kind of, you could, you could pull a good principle out of that. So let's just kind of talk through this understandably again. Some of it is very specific because this was the church in Ephesus and Timothy was the pastor of that church and the Apostle Paul was writing to him. So some of it was very specific to that church, okay? But as we look at this, we can still pull out some principles that you and I can apply. You follow what we're doing? I want to be, you know, right, uh, intellectually honest with God's word. So in the first century, you've got widows that represented a large group of people that were in need. Um, for the most part, a woman who had been uh, widowed really was left destitute. Even if she was healthy and able-bodied and she could work, there was no way for her to work. Women didn't have the right to do that. It was uh, just that's the way that that society was set up, and it was not favorable to a woman in that situation, right? So especially an older woman, if her father was dead and then her husband was now dead, she now would be left with no recourse, right? And so these, these ladies were in desperate need, and it was an issue for the first church. The Apostle Paul, he's given some instruction to Pastor Timothy about what to do in his church for these people who are in need. And the first thing that he said was this, the extended family is responsible. That's the first line of defense in welfare is, well, you, you got kids, they ought to be paying for you. You got, uh, you got cousins, you got aunts, uncles, they ought to be covering the bill. You, you, we take care of our family, right? That's first. That's the first line. So uh, I think it's interesting, kind of the, and then you get verse 8 is very strong language. Very strong language. Anyone who does not provide for his relatives has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch. So the point kind of is this. What good is my faith if it doesn't motivate me to be generous to those closest to me? I mean, if, if my faith doesn't motivate me to even be generous to my own mom, right? I mean, come on. That's not a very good faith. It's not a very strong faith, right? If I can't even take care of the people who are closest to me in my own family, uh, I think that's, sort of, that's not cool. That's, that's my interpretation of that. Verse 16 restates it by addressing that younger women who probably were married and had families, and were, you know, that, that the younger women who probably were married and they had families and they're working, he says, don't let the church be burdened by those in your family. So your family is 
the first line of care. However, there are obviously some people who don't have family that can care for them. That's true. So then the church kicks it into action, right? And when the church kicks it into action, you see the list. Hey, let's make sure there are people of good repute. There are people that contribute. There are people with a good reputation. There are people that serve. There, right? He goes, let's take care of them. And then we, so you kind of weigh out the needs. And uh, he basically says, if a younger woman wants to get remarried, great. But if an older woman's unable to do that, well, then we've got to make sure she gets on the list first. So here's the Bible makes a tremendous assumption. One that you and I got to really take note of. And that's this. Your family has to have it together. You know, that's a huge assumption in that text, isn't it? And I look around in our society and, I mean, have you noticed that as the family unit has crumbled in our nation that we've become increasingly dependent on the government, that increasingly we're trusting in government to do what traditionally family has done? And we're depending on the government to do for our family members what we're supposed to do for our family members and that the family has got to be strengthened here, friends. And if there's anything in this, it's a call to us to make sure that our families are are whole. I know, I know that we all we have trouble. There's trouble. I get that. And it doesn't mean that it's fixed tomorrow. And I'm not trying to place some heavy burden. I'm just saying that let's start in our households. Let's start with our own households. God, would you please make my home, make my family something that's pleasing to you. God, give me wisdom, wisdom, Lord, to love my family and build my family in a way that honors you, right? Wisdom, Lord. We desperately need God's help in this regard. And then the second thing, the church is best positioned to determine the needs and then to be able to meet them. You know, it's easy to take advantage of a faceless government with deep pockets. It's a lot harder to do that in the context of an accountable church relationship and community. So the church is best positioned. I know that some of you push back on me and you say, look, yeah, the church isn't doing it, so the government has to. That's the argument that's given. Well, you know what? We can't speak for the church. I can't do that. It's too big. It's too nebulous. But let's look in our own mirror, New River Church. What are we doing to practice biblical welfare? Sometimes it's too easy to just start talking about the church and all that should be done and isn't being done. Let's not go there. Let's make this personal. Let's look in the mirror. What are we doing to practice biblical welfare? What are we doing to care for our family members who are in need? What are we doing? If I'm understanding Scripture, it begins with me and my family. And then we as a church family discuss together how we can together meet the needs of those within our church community in our local region. Can I just tell you, one of the things that I pray for is that God would use us to create jobs. I don't quite, I don't quite see it totally and clear enough to be able to articulate it. But I just, I know that many of you have an entrepreneurial spirit. Many of you have ideas and dreams that you see in I just want to, I'm praying that you would have the boldness to begin to walk that out and that 
that we would actually be able to create many, many, many kingdom businesses that, that provide meaningful work for people who maybe currently are not even able to work or not working. Wouldn't that be cool? And that somehow, I don't know what it looks like, but I'm asking you, can we pray together with it? Can we say, God, okay, we're going to take this seriously, God. We're, we're, we want to be what you're calling us to be. And um, so I know I don't really give you a lot of answers, but I'm, I'm soliciting. Can we pray together and seek the Lord together about how to do this together in a way that honors him? Last Sunday, we closed with a prayer for God to bless the work of our hands in Psalms 90, verse 17. Um, you can look it up, and it's a great verse. If you missed last Sunday, Psalms ninety seventeen. Pray it tomorrow before you go off to work. It's a great prayer. But today, let's end with another prayer found in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. And Karis, you can come and play if you want and prepare us for the last song. But Proverbs 37 to 9 says this. I'll, I'll read it, and then I'm going to invite you to pray it with me, okay? Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. It's a great prayer, isn't it? So if you would like to, if you agree with this prayer, I invite you right now to pray it with me. It's on the screen behind me. Let's pray it out loud. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's right, Lord. The, Lord, our heart today is that we trust you. Like you taught us to pray, Jesus, give us this day our daily bread. <clears throat> I trust you day to day. Lord, I pray that uh, we, your people, um, would be generous. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant to us divine, heavenly strategies for how we might bring your kingdom to this region. That, Lord, right now there are people out of work. And, God, we declare the day would come soon as that they would be in work as a direct result of some of the dreams and efforts that these people here begin to carry out. Lord, I pray your kingdom come. It's the best thing that could ever hit this region, your kingdom. And we ask this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.